Okay, so here's where we are. We started a series a few weeks ago we're calling My Story. And we said that it's vitally important for us to figure out our stories because, because if we don't figure out who we are, if we don't figure out our stories, like we have no shot of living this abundant life that Jesus talked about. Like Jesus in John 10 says that he's come to give life and give it abundantly. But if we can't figure out who we are, if we don't know who we are inside of us, there's like no shot of us living that kind of life. And so we said that we had to figure out what our stories were. We said we could take this character, David, this guy in the Bible that tons has written about him, and we could use his story as sort of a baseline understanding of all of our stories. Because, because all of our stories have the same basic components, including David's. And while all of our stories have some differences and they're rounded out with some differences, they have the same basic ideas that David had in his story. And we said there was two components to our stories. We said first, because David was picked by God, handpicked by God, we said the same thing is true of us. Ephesians 1 is clear that we were chosen by God. And we said that's the beginning of our story. We've got to come to grips with that, the fact that we were chosen by God. And then we said the rest of our story is simply this, that we were chosen for a purpose. Like there is meaning and, and, and direction and intentionality towards who we are. We're not just accidental. We just don't live for the weekend. We don't just float through, but rather we're chosen by God for a purpose. And we said, that's it. That's our whole story. That's David's whole story. That's our whole story. And everything else that goes on in our lives is really just helping us to be uh, rounded characters. If you're into literature, you know what I mean by a rounded character. Because we all have differences in terms of tragedy and success. And we have seasons of life that are adventure and seasons that are a pause. And we all have different joys and different sadnesses. But at the end of the day, those just round out our story because really our story is that we were chosen by God for a purpose. And so last week we said, okay, that's great. How do we live that out? I think there's some key elements to living out that story in the world around us. And last week we looked at an event, The Life of David, and we said that a key element, number one, to living out that story is to develop a God-sized imagination. A God-sized imagination. We looked at the story of David and Goliath, and David battled this giant. And one of the things that was true about David, he had spent a lot of time looking at how huge Goliath was. He spent a lot of time putting his imagination on what God has done and what God could do. And we said, man, if we're going to live out this story that I was chosen by God for a purpose, if I'm going to live that out in my everyday, like I got I to start by developing a God-sized imagination. And Ephesians 3 was so clear. It talks about this God that we know he is, he is able to do more than we could ever imagine. That's an amazing statement. He can do more than you can think up. That's a cool thing. We said it all starts with that. It all starts with this idea of a God-sized imagination. Today, we want to look at a second element of, uh, of living this story out. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll read a little bit in 22, but, but 24 is where we're going to spend the morning camping. And because, um, because we don't, we're talking about a nation called Israel, uh, Jewish people, we don't necessarily know all their history because frankly, it, it probably doesn't matter a ton. To most of us. 4,000 years ago, this nation called Israel, we're like, eh, okay, that's nice, that's cool, you know. And so we don't really have their history in our head, and that's okay. But let me just, in, in, in a minute and a half, do the Chris Carter version of history up to this point, okay? Here we go. It says, Israel really wanted this really cool new thing called a king, and so they picked tall, dark, and handsome, a guy by the name of Saul. Saul eventually turns away from God and goes a little insane. 
God shows a new king. He anoints this guy named David. David was the youngest of eight brothers. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. David moves from shepherd to musician therapist to giant slayer to spear dodger. Saul becomes even more insane and tries multiple times to kill David. David at this point finally decides it's a good idea to probably run. So he takes off and he goes out into the desert and starts hiding. Meanwhile, Saul's got the entire army out trying to find David so he can kill him. Saul's single-minded focus is ending David's life. One kid against the entire armies of Saul, the nation of Israel. If you're a kid, could you imagine like that's your life? Like all you do is run and hide all day long. Don't imagine that. It'll make you sad, right? That's what David's doing, running and hiding all day long. Meanwhile, Saul's trying to find him and hunt him down. And it's interesting because during this Saul hunting, David running episode of David's life, David writes some of the coolest psalms. There's a book in the Bible called Psalms. It's a, it's a collection of songs or, or poems or whatever. And, and David writes some of the best psalms during this season of him hiding and running and, and, and going, what in the world's going on? What's happening? Saul's trying to kill me. It's a crazy, crazy season in David's life. Some of the coolest psalms are written from that. But David has this reputation for being a skilled warrior and leader. Because while David is hiding from Saul, while the king of Israel is trying to kill David, David is still protecting Israel's borders from all the bad guys. You with me? David's protecting Israel. Israel's trying to kill David. Bad guys are trying to kill David. David's hiding in caves, writing psalms. I don't want that life. And as he's hiding, because he's got this reputation of being a skilled warrior, skilled leader, a bunch of guys come out to join his... uh, his movement or whatever he's got going on out there to join the hiding. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, that just talks about those guys. It says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were, catch this, in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. All those who were in debt, distressed, or discontented. This is not the group of people you want to build a company on, right? You're starting a new business and you say, hey, if you're like a malcontent and angry and in debt and owe a lot of money, come work for me. We'll build this great thing, right? Am I the only one that thinks that? You guys would hire weird. I just got to be honest. Because I don't think these are the people that I want to build a company on. These probably aren't the people that I want to build a nation on. These aren't the people we want to build a church on. These are grumpy, like indebted, dangerous, desperate dorks. I just try to alliterate that somehow. Like these folks are coming out to David and they are not the cream of the crop. These are not, you're, you're tracking this right now, right? David is there, these guys are coming out, they're going with another David, we're behind you, we're 100% with you, we're in debt, diseased, dishonored, distracted, something, discontented, and those are the guys that David says, okay, and they start doing this thing. Okay, that's who's coming out, that's what's going on. Uh, uh, You get the picture, David is defending Israel, protecting her borders while Israel's trying to kill her, while Saul, the king of Israel, is trying to kill David, rather, Um, and so that gets us up to speed today. 1 Samuel chapter 24, the event that we want to pull a second element to living our stories out of. This is what it says. It says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. You caught that number, right? 
Somebody said, oh my goodness, that's the right response. Saul takes 3,000 trained military soldiers, right? SEAL team six through, I don't know how many are in a SEAL team, 106. 3,000 soldiers to go after one shepherd kid. Because Saul is so single-minded focused in his jealousy and his anger and his rage and his insanity on killing this kid, David. So he takes 3,000 soldiers going after this single kid who is spending his time defending Israel, by the way. And it says that they go up to this area called uh, the Crags of the Wild Goats. I don't know why it's named that, but it's interesting because that area, that desert of En Gedi, that desert where David is hiding, uh, is, is filled with thousands and thousands of these little caves. Like, it's near impossible to search that area. You could never explore all the caves that are in that area because there are literally so many of them, thousands and thousands of caves. And they probably called that area the the crags, the, the nooks and crannies of the wild goats, probably because only the wild goats could actually get up into some of these caves. So David and his men are hiding in this really, really probably secure, hard-to-get-to, out-of-the-way kind of place. Here's why that's interesting, verse 3. It says, he, Saul, came to the sheep pen, and along the way, a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Uh-huh. And David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then Saul crept up unnoticed, I'm sorry, David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I know you caught what happened there. I just want to make sure all the kids caught. What happened there? Saul is cruising around. Saul decides that he has some business to do. When it says that Saul went into the cave to relieve himself, it does not mean that he was hot and tired. It doesn't mean he needs to sit down and take a break. It doesn't mean he wants to watch some Netflix. It means exactly what you think it means. And it's probably not number one. Probably number two. So Saul goes in to do some business. Now, here's the irony of God that's so funny. is Saul goes into the exact cave out of thousands and thousands of caves that David and his dudes are hiding in. That's funny, right? What are the odds? It's a coincidence, right? And so Saul goes in and he's doing his business and David and his guys are hiding in the back of the cave and I don't know what it sounded like in the back of the cave with the guys, the guys, <laughs> the boys. They're there all... <laughs> or whatever they're doing back there. But somewhere in there, they're whispering to David, David, today's the day. Man, God's given. It's God's will that you would kill Saul. End the insanity. End the madness. We know you're going to be king. Saul's out of his mind. Just end this. This whole running and hiding thing, it was cool for a week. It's now getting old. Just end it. Go and kill Saul. Cool? It's God's will that you kill Saul. It has to be God's will, because look, Thousands of caves, he's relieving himself in the same cave we're hiding in. Like, it has to be God's will. Go and do it. It's interesting because the phrase that, that the scripture, the Bible, says that, that those guys say, is, it says in verse 4, it says, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Interesting thing about that, that's not recorded anywhere. We're not sure that was, that, was, that was ever said. More than likely, that was never said to David or to the guys, but the guys are so sure this must be God's will that they tell David to go kill Saul. And David begins to creep up on Saul. In my head, this is how it worked. He starts belly crawling up to Saul. Saul's doing his thing, and he belly crawls up to Saul. And I think David's going up to kill him. 
I think David is thinking that that's what he's going to do. But somewhere in the belly crawling to get to Saul, David has this change of mind. And he, and he thinks that's not right. And so he cuts off this little chunk, just this little chunk of Saul's robe. right? And, and, he, and he belly crawls backwards out. Right? And he gets back with his guys and he probably, I don't know, shows them the robe. And, and half his guys are probably frustrated with him. They're like, David! Ah! It could have ended. Like, what's going on? And maybe the other half were like, woohoo, we're going to make fun of Saul because we got his robe while he was doing his thing. Right? And so I don't know all that's going on, but we got this scene of somehow David changes his mind and just takes a, a clip of the robe instead of killing Saul. David's guys are telling him, David, God's will. God's clear. You've got you to kill Saul and end it. David's saying, I'm not so sure. It's interesting because we get ourselves into a lot of trouble with that phrase, God told me. It's God's will. God wants me to. God freed me from. Like we get ourselves into lots of trouble because we use that phrase very flippantly, I think. God, God's will. God must want me to have those thousands and thousands of dollars because I found some kind of not entirely legal way of getting it. But you know what? God put it into my head, so it must be okay. Like we do lots of things under the guise of it's God's will or God wants me to. And if David had listened to his boys, this story would have turned out so different. We'll finish it in a minute here. But it would have turned out so different if David would have listened to them. So I'm not convinced it was God's will. I'm not convinced it was God's will that, 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 that God wanted David to kill. So we get ourselves into trouble by saying it's God's will. That's why it's so vital that we have a group of people around us, Christ followers. That we have a life group around us. We have a small group, a group of other Christian men and women. So when we're convinced God is telling me to do something, I can ask that group of people, hey, what do you think? And they can go, I don't know, Chris. You're, you're convinced God's telling you to leave your whole family and start a llama farm? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's okay or not. Let's pray about that together, Chris. Let's think that through together. So vital. We have a group of people around us to help us think through that. And so vital we are familiar with what the Bible says. Because God's never going to tell us to do or in indicate for us to do or give us the opportunity to do something that contradicts what he already said in the Bible. So important that we're familiar with the Bible. So when, again, I'm thinking about leaving my entire family and just starting a llama farm, I look at the Bible and I'm like, I know. The Bible seems pretty clear about my responsibility to my kids and to my wife, commitments that I've made, what pleases and honors God, what doesn't please and honor God. I don't know about the llama farm thing. I'm being kind of silly, but, but, but we're together on this, right? We know people who have said, it's okay for me to do that because God told me it's okay. And I, and I just think that we get ourselves into a lot of trouble with that phrase if we don't have people around us who will help us think through it in a good familiarity with the Scripture. Well, David must have had something going on with him because he, he doesn't do what the guys are saying. He, he crawls up, he cuts this little chunk of robe off, and, and we get into verse uh, 5. Because if the story would have stopped there, that would be kind of a cool story, but it continues on, and it says this in verse 5. It says, um, Afterward, uh, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. What a strange turn. What a strange detail to note. 
that, that David, not killing Saul, should have felt good about doing that. Instead, he feels guilt, conscience-stricken. He feels a sense of guilt because he, he just cut the piece of robe off. He feels bad about that. And he feels bad because he says, you know, that, that, that Saul, it was, you know, that was the king that God allowed to be on the throne last. And yeah, God's told me I'm going to be king at someday, but God's not removed Saul yet. And Saul is God's problem, not my problem. And my role in this is to do what I know I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm not convinced it's to kill Saul because God's not said that or been clear about that. That's God's issue. And so David feels a sense of guilt. And he rebukes his guys. He goes, guys, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go kill Saul. You got to imagine there was one guy named Larry in that group hiding in the back of the cave that said, well, you won't do it, David. I'll do it. Give me your sword. Right? No, Larry, that's not cool. We're not going to do that. That's God's problem. Saul is God's deal. We're not going to do it. And so what was the difference between David's guys, uh, 400 of them, however many were hiding in that cave, 40, whatever, were there? What's the difference between David's guys and David? I think it's this, and I think it's the point we're going to pound today. And if you're using the app, it's going to be a fill-in. And I think it's the next element to living out our stories. It's this one right here. David saw people through God's eyes. David saw people through God's eyes. David's boys were looking at the situation through their eyes, and it only made sense to them. Kill Saul and the insanity. And David's looking at Saul through God's eyes and going, I'm just, I'm sure that's not my job. I'm sure that Saul is God's problem. And God is big enough, and God is in control enough, and sovereign enough that he has some plan here, and I don't know what it is, and how dare me interrupt that process. If God has still got a plan for Saul to figure it out and come back to him somehow, David's saying, how in the world could I get in the way of that? David had this incredible knack for seeing others through God's eyes. Matter of fact, what's interesting about that those 400 men, by the way, eventually they're going to be called the mighty men. That's pretty funny to me because it's all these discontent, malcontent, indebted, distressed people. They're going to become like David's mighty men, right? Well, those 400 guys that came to David, if that had happened to me, if I'd have been in the kit and, and these guys were coming to me, all these D-type guys, you know, I'd have been like, hey, that's cool. Thanks for the visit. You know, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Like, it's cool. Hey, matter of fact, it's just easier. I appreciate you loving me and wanting to be with me, but it's so much easier to hide by myself than it is to hide with 400 of y'all, right? Like, if I were David, I'd have told those 400 to take off because they're not the guys that I want to build something on. Probably because I look at people through my own eyes. But see, even with those 400, David is looking at those guys through God's eyes because he doesn't see 400 malcontent, grumpy dorks he sees 400 guys that are just like sheep without a shepherd, that are just lost and hurting and distraught. And David probably thinks, wow, I'm good at shepherding. I could do that. I'll just shepherd them. It'll be good. And so he brings them in. They hide in a cave, and Saul shows up, and they cut this rope. David had this incredible knack for seeing others through God's eyes. Here's how the story continues to go. If it would have ended there, that would have been cool. We would have been like, oh, that's a good story. Like, you know, David cut off the robe, and, and he was like, oh, you know, I didn't kill him. And he you know, listened to God. That's a cool study. We're really glad for that. And, and we would have been like, great story. But then it gets super weird in verse 8. It says, then David, after he tells his guys, no, we're not going to, Larry, we're not going to go kill him. It says, then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? 
This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you to my hands in the cave, and some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Like, whom are you punishing me? Am I a dead dog or a flea? And may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. David comes out of the cave and in essence confesses to Saul. That seems crazy to me. David comes out of the cave, exposes himself to 3,000 arrows. Not only that, he lays down on the ground, kind of this, this older sense of submission and, and respect and apology. And he lays on the ground. And he says, Saul, you know, I could have killed you. My guy said to kill you, but I couldn't. I couldn't because I know that God has you on the position for a reason. I don't understand it, but I know you're there because God has you there for now. And I'm not going to try and take that. That's not my job. And he says, matter of fact, I cut this piece of robe, I could have killed you. I think David feels a sense of sorrow and guilt. In essence, he's confessing to Saul. And then David lays out his plea. He says, Saul, you're acting like a maniac. I haven't done anything to try and hurt you. I haven't tried to take your kingdom. I haven't tried to kill. I am not doing anything wrong here. And yet you're chasing me down with all these guys. Like, please stop. This is crazy. He says, you know what, Saul, like, let God judge between us. I'm trying to do what I can do, and I'm, live, I'm trying to live it right. Saul, you're out of your mind. That's, that's weird to me. That's weird to me that David would feel such a sense of seeing Saul through God's eyes that in essence he would like confess to Saul, like, hey, me taking this chunk of robe pr- probably wasn't even right. Like me doing that probably wasn't okay. It's very strange that David would have that sense in his conscience. And if the story ended there, that would be kind of cool. We'd be like, okay, David's really sweet and he's really sensitive and he feels bad and so he talks to Saul about it and that's cool. And they all, they like hugged, Saul ran up the hill, they hugged each other and they went off and, and ruled the galaxy together forever and it was awesome. Like that would be cool if the story ended like that, but it doesn't. It's a tragedy, not a comedy. It doesn't end happy, it ends heartbreaking. Heartbreaking in verse 16. It says, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, Saul said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established by your hand. And he goes on to finish that story in 27. It says, David uh, gave his oath to Saul, and Saul returned home, but David went off into the stronghold. That's sad. In this moment of clarity, in this moment of complete uh, lucidity, that Saul sees clear. He says, David, what am I doing? What am I doing? Like, you're right. You're more right than I am. I get it. I see that. You're more right than I am. Like, you should have taken my life. That would have been seeing me like anybody else sees me, and yet you didn't. He goes, you're more right than I am. And not only that, but Saul says, you know what? I, I know you're going to be the king. Like, I know that. 
and we want it to end there with the hug or something. But it doesn't. Because that little verse at the end says that Saul went off his way and David went off his way. And we get chapter 25. We'll talk about that next week. We get one good chapter. And then in chapter 26, Saul is back to the same old garbage. He's out after David trying to kill him, sending guys out, hunting for him in caves, trying to kill this kid. You ever experienced that? Like, like you've had something go on in your life, like something really scary, I don't know, maybe you thought you were going to die or you thought something tragic was going to happen or you were getting that diagnosis or whatever it was and you're freaked out and so you cry out to Jesus. You're like, Jesus, save me. Jesus, help me. And Jesus does. Like Jesus, you, you don't die. Jesus spares your life. Like that tragedy actually turns out to be good or that diagnosis comes back as nothing and you're just like all hot for Jesus for a chapter. And like the next chapter turns and you're just back to the same old garbage. Are you, is that just me? <laughs> that does that see with Saul too. For a chapter like Saul got it. And then he's just back to the same old stuff. So what do we see? What do we see here? Here's what we see. Uh, through our own eyes, we see unclear. Through David's guise, their eyes were fixed on Saul, and, and they were saying, it's got to be like this. And, and, and as Saul was a madman king who was depressed and daily tormented by a demon, you can imagine the state of the nation at the time. So it makes sense in our head, in our eyes, that those guys would be pushing towards their solution. But David says, no way, no how. He sees people differently. He sees through God's eyes. And I wonder, I wonder if at the end of the day, as David was leaving, if he took that little piece of cloth that he tore from Saul's robe, and maybe, I don't know, he put it on his belt, or maybe he put it in his tent. I don't know this. I'm just wondering if maybe he put it somewhere. Where every morning when he woke up, or every day when he reached for his dagger, or every morning when he make, went to make that cup of coffee, he saw that. He was just reminded how important it is for him to see people through God's eyes. And so every day as he looks at these 400 guys that are discontent, grumpy, pain in the butts and every day when he looks at Saul every day when he looks at everything else in life every other person in his life he sees them through God's eyes and not just his own eyes I don't want us to think that this is just a story for back then like oh that's cool that was David they ran around in robes and sandals and stuff and so that's what they did or whatever that's neat but, but I, this is something for like today matter of fact this is something that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 6 this is what Jesus says he says, this, he says, it's in the middle of kind of a long sermon. He's been talking for a little while, but this is what he says. Jesus says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you won't be condemned. That's, that's interesting language because sometimes Christ followers, who are Christ followers that were together today, sometimes this is the reputation that we have in the world for judging and for condemning, Right? And Jesus says, don't judge and don't condemn. And he goes on, he says, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And he also went on to tell this parable. He said, can a blind lead the blind? Will they both not fall into a pit? Students are not above their teacher, but all who are fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look for the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, friend, let me take that speck out of your eye when yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. What's, what's the point of all of that? There's, there's lots of points in there, but here's the 
only point I want to make. Like the only way we change that reputation, the only way that we steer clear of judging and condemning, the only way that we're able to be giving and forgiving is to see others through Jesus' eyes. To see others through Jesus' eyes. And, and I got to be honest, I stink at this. Like this is hard for me. I'm quick to see people through my own eyes and the problems and the issues and the stuff and why I don't like or whatever. So vital if I'm going to live out this story of being chosen for a purpose that I figure out how to live and see people through Jesus' eyes. We, we look at the them, whoever the them is, the them, the conservatives or the liberals, right? The them, the, the Republicans or the Democrats, the them, the LGBT or the, 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 the uber uh, uh, right or, or whoever the them are, whoever the them is in your world, the feminists or the chauvinists, whoever the them is, we look at them and we think, ah, oh, if they just, if they could just see if I could just explain to them that, and I think living out my story means me figuring out, me figuring out, how do I see them through Jesus' eyes? Because really, like, how does Jesus see me? <laughs> I, want, I want people to look at me through Jesus' eyes. I got to look at people through Jesus' eyes. That's not just, every week we've read a section out of Ephesians as well, and it's, we do that because I don't want us to think that this is somehow just stuff for a long time ago, thousands of years ago, but this is stuff for today. In Ephesians 4, this is how the Bible writer puts it. He says this, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. In other words, I urge you to live your story. You were chosen for a purpose. I want to urge you to live that in a certain way. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How in the world do we live that? Gentle and humble, patient, bearing with. The only shot we have of living like that is to see others through Jesus' eyes. Because some of you will drive me nuts. <laughs> and I can guarantee you that I will drive all of you nuts. And so if we look at each other just from our own perspectives and through our own eyes, oh, it's a disaster. But when we look at each other, and we look at them, and we look at people, we look at Saul, and we look at the 400 discontents through the eyes of Jesus, we have a shot. It's interesting because the Bible writer in Ephesians, he uses the word one over and over and over again. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. To drive home the concept of the focal point of all of this stuff is one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. The focal point of all of this stuff is Jesus. So we got to figure out how to see others through Jesus' eyes. Looking at people the way Jesus looks at people. Man, sometimes when I think about my own stuff, I think about the stuff that I only know about. And sometimes I think, man, does Jesus even look at me? Or does he have to like do one of these numbers? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean by that? Like, I, don't, I can't quite look at Chris completely because he's really gross. So I just got to like glance. And we know that's not true. I feel that sometimes, but I know that's not true. Like Jesus looks on me square on and he sees me the way I, I really want to be seen. 
He sees me righteous, and he sees me holy, and he sees me good, and he, and he sees me together, and he sees me complete. It's just crazy the way that Jesus sees me. Not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of what Jesus has already paid for and done on the cross. Right? And so if you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's the best part of a relationship with Jesus. It's that Jesus looks on you eyeball to eyeball and doesn't see all your junk and all your mess and all those components. He sees who he's created you to be. And so when I say this is hard, it's hard for me. When I say see others through Jesus' eyes, man, that's kind of what we're saying. To look at people and see people the way Jesus sees people. Second component in living out this, this whole story thing, living out the fact that I was chosen for a purpose is to see others the way Jesus sees them. It's the only hope of figuring this whole thing out. So what have we said so far? Two, two elements, two components to figuring out and living the story. Last week we said cultivate a God-sized imagination. Today we said figuring out how to see others the way Jesus sees them. Here's how I want to finish today. I want to show you a real short video that I think just puts punctuation on all of this, on what we're talking about. It's, it's kind of artsy, and so if you're into artsy, you'll get it, and if you're not, it's only a minute. It'll be okay, but, but it puts punctuation on this whole concept, so take a look at the screen. Thank you.